The rest of you can open up to Romans chapter 12. We're back in Romans, and if you um, snagged a bulletin on the way in, you can open up the notes that may be helpful for you. So you are going to think me positively mad, um, but I want you to hear me out for a second. We are going to cover two verses this, uh, this Sunday, but about halfway through the week, I cut that number in half. So we are going to cover one verse in the book of Romans um, this morning, and there's some very specific reasons. One is I wanted to spare you and me from an eight-hour sermon. Uh, that seemed like just a bit much. Uh, but secondly, these two verses are super, super familiar to you. You will hear them and go, oh yeah, those verses. And the reason they're so familiar is they are an amazing, compact summary of some huge Christian living truth. So to give proper attention to it and to soak in it, um, we, uh, we, meaning me, decided to cover one verse this week. Now, uh, after two weeks, so next week we're going to cover one verse again, but after these first two weeks, we're going to like pick up the pace so that we're not um, still in Romans by the time your infants are graduating from college. So we're going to like pick it up after that in, in a little bit. Um, as we reopen Romans, if you are uh, relatively new with us and weren't here for part of it, and even if you were, it's good to kind of re-engage our brains a little bit and remember some things. Uh, the stats of ancient Rome are absolutely impressive. Uh, 20% of the population, 12 centuries of existence. When you think of all these different parts of our society that have been touched by ancient Rome, it really is just an impressive stat. And I bring that up because this letter was written in that time period. It is a contemporary, in fact, of the Colosseum. The letter to the Romans was finished 23 years before the Colosseum was completed in 80 AD. I bring that up because of this. The greatest civilization of antiquity now lies like a corpse. It's dead and it's visited by people, but the Colosseum is void of life. It is a shell of all the hustle and bustle that used to be there. But the word of God, this letter that we are opening up this morning, is alive and active, not just in our lives, but in the lives of millions of people around the world today. Consider this fact. Ancient Rome is visited, people spend money to go visit there, but they aren't fundamentally changed by it day after day. There are people today who are memorizing, who are meditating on, who are opening up and studying this letter written in the same time period of all of this stuff in ancient Rome. No longer are sacrifices being made to honor Jupiter or Julius Caesar, but songs are sung today to extol the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that not powerful to your brain? It's powerful to my brain. The fall of Rome is absolutely famous, uh, and it was also predicted by Jesus. In Matthew 24, he says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, along with Rome and Washington, D.C., and Moscow and Silicon Valley, but my word will never pass away. So this is just another reminder that as we open up and do the hard work of studying a difficult letter at times, the letter to the Romans, um, we have great motivation for doing it. I'm not going to rehash uh, past sermons this morning, but I went back and sort of reviewed some stuff, and I just extend to you that we have a team every week that diligently posts podcasts, um, 
recordings of our sermons. So you can go back and listen to if you missed parts of it or you wanted to go back and see what, is our, what, is, what has our church taught on this passage before or this now seems really pertinent, you can go back and do so. In the very first week of this, we just covered some of the major teachings of Romans. And this is a challenging thing to put it into four bullet points. Um, that you, you could kind of go a lot of different ways with this. But bottom line is that the, Romans, the, the, the letter to the Romans sets God's measuring stick for righteousness. That's, that's one of the major themes of Romans is just this theme of righteousness. Uh, secondly, we see a major theme to walk by faith rather than by sight. And that's another way of just saying trust God. And this third one is the one that I really want to hone your attention into because this morning is a shift toward this third theme, and that is this. We are to mimic God. He gave himself freely in love for us. We are to do the same in response to his laying down his life for us. And that's really where we're headed this morning. That's where chapter 12 turns the shift. And finally, where we get this this, um, overarching title for the series, Colossal Truth, is this, that this truth is for all mankind, everywhere, always, through all of time. And I won't go through all of them, but just look at some of these, uh, some of the all and every language, the depravity of all mankind found in Romans 3, the penalty that all sin deserves, the rescue um, for everyone's death sentence, which is the gospel, the work of Christ that is enough to cover all of humanity, Um, The offer that is available to everyone who believes. And finally, the only way to grace is through the door of belief. This is really sweeping language in in its scope. It really is colossal truth. When you see the word colossal, I don't want you just to think of massive or big. It is colossal in its reach to everyone, for all people, for all of time. But it is also colossal in terms of its importance. You might remember we talked about the idea that truth is truth, but not all truth is equal. There are currently big truths and little truths going off, going on in your life. If you lived in the Old West and you got a hangnail, that'd be kind of a big deal. But if you had a hang noose around your neck, that's a bigger truth. Like both could be true, but all of a sudden the hangnail doesn't matter a whole lot, right? Um, If you are uh, in the process of getting fired right now, that's kind of a big deal. Joblessness, employment, that's sort of a big deal. Uh, But being on fire is is a bigger truth. Like that that has more important uh, implications than getting fired. And so here's what happens. Bigger truths, like the massive truths of life, has a way of displacing all other realities. So for Paul... He is laying out some absolutely colossal truths that dictate all other truth about him. And that's what we're looking at in this letter. All right, so Romans 12 is a shift from creed to conduct. It is this idea of here's what we believe to be true. Now here is the behavior that results from this belief. This is very typical of how Paul wrote. He wrote, first, here's truth that matters to you. Here's how we live out that truth. Hear me really clearly. This is not a shift away from belief, but it is a shift that integrates belief. What I mean by that is this. We don't take all this knowledge and now we set that aside and say, okay, now what should we do? It is a shift, but it's not a shift away from all of this doctrine. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, I am going to read 1 and 2 together just because they fit well together, and I'll give you a preview of next week. It says this, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We've broken this letter up into sort of four big ideas that sort of, um, as you see these words, ruin and redemption and rejection and responsibility, your brain can kind of compartmentalize a letter that spans a whole bunch of stuff. And this final idea is this, that we do have responsibilities. We have duties. And this morning, what we're looking at this morning and next week is our responsibility to God. That we have responsibilities to God. And it's going to go on to say that we have responsibilities to our church family, to our neighborhood, to our world, to our society, and on and on it goes. The wordplay, of course, is this. That our ability to carry out these duties is rooted in a response to a loving God. That the very capacity we have to live these responsibilities is is, um, is outlined by Paul because of all that God has done for us. You may have had some real bad experiences with church, with spirituality, with pleasing God, and even with people who call themselves Christians. Things always go on the road to bad when you go seek to live out the responsibilities that God calls us to without first Um, living in the truth that he's done for us. Because it always centers on yourself. Responsibilities divorce from the colossal truths that shape us. Here's what Jesus said in John 13. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we can get stuck in just knowing a bunch of stuff and not living it out. That's ending the study of Romans at the end of chapter 11. Uh, or we can also, uh, that, that's sort of letting doctrine be an end in itself. Instead of a framework for living, doctrine just becomes a whole bunch of knowledge, right? It puffs us up. But the other thing we can do is we can make the mistake of saying, I don't get all this Jew-Gentile stuff. Why is he talking about Abraham? That stuff's sort of hard to wade into. Let me jump right into let love be sincere. I get that. Hallmark gets that. That's an easy Hallmark saying. We go, yep, let's do that. But then to go walk and try to let love be sincere without all that God has done for you leads to disaster. All right. Some of your translations might have the word therefore in 12.1 as the number one verse. This one word um, actually, actually is a part of what slowed things down a whole bunch. Anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you have to sort of get the context, like he's making this major shift. All of this is true, therefore, and then to understand what's really talking about, you have to kind of go and look back. If you sort of track the therefores, this is the third and final major therefore uh, that makes a shift. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he's just been talking about the fact that we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Major, major shift in, in the letter. In Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, another major theological shift about what redemption looks like. Now we're talking about our response, our responsibilities, and he's putting out another therefore. 
If you look at the first two therefores, they are passive. That is, they are things that have been, been done to us or for us. It's just a proclamation of good news. And this third one is active. We have a role in this. We are now to present our bodies. We have now something to do. The gospel is not primarily something you do, but something that has been done. We know this, right? We talk about this regularly. And yet, the gospel is not only something that you believe with your brain, but something that you do with your body. Once again, you can see how we get really stuck if we think about this. If the gospel is mainly something that we do and live out and try for, we lead, we lead ourselves into a sort of works theology. And we lead ourselves on this roller coaster. God's happy with me. I'm doing well. God hates me. I'm doing terrible. I think I might go to heaven if I die in this moment. I think I might go to hell if I, do, if I die in this moment. But the gospel is not just something that we believe with our brain but something that we do with our body. Here's the overarching message today is this, that the thing that's going to motivate and sustain this ongoing presentation of your body in worship to God is in this next phrase, in view of God's mercies. Therefore, with all these 11 chapters laid out, in view of God's mercies, what mercies is he talking about? Go back and read 1 through 11. He's been outlining them for 11 chapters. Some of your translations say mercy of God. That's incorrect. That hides the fact that the Greek says it's plural. It's these individual acts that we ought to pause, not just generally God's merciful because that's his character. It's pausing to say, what are the individual mercies that are true about my life? The many and varied specific acts of God that God's been laying out. And if you need help detailing those, read your Bible. Again, go back and read 1 through 11 and you begin to see some of these things. This is a powerful thought that your obedience is not manufactured by you, but is a product of what God is doing and has done in you. Therefore, reflect and remember and recount these colossal truths that you've come to know. I was totally ruined. I became completely redeemed. I am utterly free and entirely secure in the love of God. A part of what we do as a church, we just sang, by the way, some incredible biblical truth leading up to this opening of the, of, of the word of God. In fact, in light of the passage today, there are some shadings of things up there that I thought, man, um, th that, that's exactly what we're talking about right there. Part of what we do as a church is we recount and we remember and we rehearse with one another the mercies of God that is going on. And it's a springboard for worship moving on ahead. Eugene Peterson in the message said it this way, Embrace, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. So your responsibility is to live out, <clears throat> um, your, your responsibilities that you have to live out is really the only sort of rational response once you get in your head, totally ruined, completely redeemed, utterly free and secure in the love of God. And this is what Paul calls your holy and acceptable spiritual act of worship. Let me shift your brain to worship for one moment. Everyone you ever meet, 
has been created to be an unceasing worshiper. You can't help yourself. You worship. You are made in the image of a, of a, of a, of a God who, who designed you to worship. So what is it that you worship? You worship whatever you ascribe value to. And you can always tell uh, what one worships by asking some of these kinds of following questions. Ask this of yourself for a moment. What holds your attention? What is it that has your attention? And if you want to know what has someone's attention, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So what are you known for talking about? I just had a really powerful testimony told to me. A woman is deeply sick um, and, and just got out of ICU this week, close friends of someone in this room. And, and this friend of me made the comment. He said, you know, she's a gourmet cook. And when we're in the kitchen, she wants to talk about nothing else while she's cooking except the Holy Spirit. If you are known for talking about God, if you are known for speaking about God, God has your attention. What is it that has your attention? Here's the second question. What do you sacrifice for? Whatever you sacrifice for, think about old ancient worship that seems really bizarre to us. People came and brought an offering. They came and brought things sacrificially because they worshipped it. What is it that you sacrifice for? What does your time and money and energy dictate? Because that tells you what your God is. Here's one more, one final one. Who or what do you look to for help and for comfort? When things go bad, what is your first line of defense in terms of comforting yourself? What is your first line of defense in saying, I have to get out of this? What do you turn to? So no matter what your mouth says, there's a sense that your actions just tell you what your God is. You can know who or what you worship by asking some of these questions. One of the things about Christianity that can never be accused of is this. In fact, it drives me up a wall sometimes when I hear this. Christianity is not just a philosophy. Christianity is not just a set of ideas or a set of ideals that sort of dictate and float around and govern people. And here's why I can say that definitively. The central figure in all of Christianity, if you go to Christianity, the first thing that you look at and study is what? Jesus Christ. The fact that the central figure in the story is God in Abad means that it's not just an ethereal thing out there that doesn't actually affect our lives, that isn't rooted in dirt and flesh and blood and everyday life. It's central to what we are. Now, for the original hearers that Paul would have written to, this thought was really, really countercultural. Because there was a general thought, you may have remembered this from some class you took in high school or college, but there was a general thought in the day, and people soaked in this as being true and real, that the body was just something sort of way down here that got in the way of the real you, your spirit. And so they sort of dismembered themselves from their bodies. And the body was something sort of down here. It was base. It was to be sort of bypassed. And the spirit was everything. So when Paul comes along and says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your body is part of your worship, that's countercultural. And we sort of miss that in, in our hearing of it. 
Listen to these things about the body. God created your body. He gifted you your body. He called your body good. He called it a temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price if you are a Christian. Therefore, you have a responsibility to your maker regarding your body. I want you to look for a moment at this famous sculpture. Anyone know who this is? Who's that a sculpture of? David, the biblical character of David. And who sculpted it? Michelangelo. Very good. As you look at this, now I gave him a little G-rated tunic there. um, But I've never seen it in person. but, but, But evidently, there David stands in all of his 17 feet of marble glory, and people come from all over the world to, to just marvel at this phenomenal, very famous piece of work that sits over in Italy. The body is beautiful, and as you study the Bible, some of your own spiritual stories came to your own body. You, you begin to study the eye and the ear and the cells and the way that uh, just, just this, this phenomenal gift that the human body is. Every single culture has its statues depicting bodies. Each country has their own customs about bodies. What Paul's already done in Romans is this. He has shown how us humans get the body wrong. We either worship it. We can err on the side of worshiping the body. And we can err on the side of demeaning the body. Turning your Bibles back to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. In Romans chapter 1, which we covered weeks and weeks ago, he has some very clear things to say that ring very true in our day and age. Follow along with me in verse 22. Romans 1, 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He goes on to list in some pretty sexually explicit ways how the bodies were dishonored in different passions and lusts. When you look at pornography and the stunning billions of dollars that surround this industry, it exposes a blatant fact. We have not moved far from Romans 1. Don't think yourself, don't fall into the lie that we're so advanced now. We're so incredibly different than the ancient Romans. Yes, we borrow from them on some of our philosophy and some of our government, but we've moved way beyond false. Interestingly about pornography, I think pornography touches on both. It starts off worshiping the body, but very quickly moves to degrading the body. Now, a less seedy way to worship the body, track with me, not far to read examples of this, is fitness and then fashion and beauty. Think about our Silicon Valley. Where do people 
sacrifice for? Where do they spend their money? What has their attention? Those kinds of things are what you worship. doesn't matter where you attend, where you're a member, any of that stuff. That's what you worship. So think about fitness for a second. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Fitness is a way to worship the body, and I think people get this so wrong. They have fit, trimmed, toned bodies that they pour endless amounts of energy to, and then they turn and they degrade their body by using it in a very immoral way. Here's what we should do with our bodies. We should care well for our bodies, but we should know that fitness fades. That if that is the main thing, you see all of these have a way of making the body an ultimate thing. It has a way of making your flesh and the way that you relate to other people fit, unfit, beautiful, ugly. It has a way of displacing other truths if that becomes an ultimate thing. How about fashion? First Peter 3 says this, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that, that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So fashion and beauty change and fade. So here's the message, particularly ladies. Focus on your character. Inner beauty that never goes out of style. Inner beauty that never disappoints. Again, none of these things have to be wrong in and of themselves, but they can lead us to a place of the body being an ultimate thing. So that's the worship of bodies. How about the degrading of bodies? The degrading of bodies is on display as well. How acceptable is it right now, even amongst Christians, maybe particularly amongst Christians, to complain and belittle about your body and about other people's bodies to each other? That's just a totally acceptable thing. But think about this for a second. How ungrateful is that to a creator God that gave you your body and gifted it to you? Now, there are some things you can control about your body. Maybe you ought to complain about those and then do something about it. But there are massive things you can't control about your body. So instead of saying, God, I receive from you. I receive all my strengths. I receive all my things that I perceive are weaknesses and I wish were different, but I can't change. What an act of worship it is to simply humbly receive that. I don't want to take people with a poor self-image and pile on heavy loads and not help lift a finger, but I do want to say this. A poor self-image is the flip side of pride. It's thinking about yourself a ton, and it's slavery. God wants to release you from that and say, I gifted you your body. It doesn't work the way that you want it to. It doesn't work the way your neighbors does. It doesn't look this way or that way. I gifted you your body. Your DNA was written by me. I'm the author. So don't demean it, don't degrade it, and don't um, enable other people as they do that. Additionally, we all have the freedom to present our bodies in different places. It's the idea of offering our body. And really, there's only two fundamental altars, that of serving sin and that of serving God. Flip over to Romans 6 for a moment. In Romans 6... 
You may remember as we went through this, 6.12, Paul's already given instruction of how not to present your body, where not to offer up your body to. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen to this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, have been brought from death to life, and your members, that is your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you hear it? Two places, two altars to put your body. You can, you can offer it to the altar of sin. You can alter, offer it to the altar of God. Don't miss the fact that we're a living sacrifice. There's so much fun stuff to get into that we're not, because again, it would make it a four-hour sermon, um, about the sacrificial system and what it meant to bring your first and best, an unblemished animal, to come and offer it up as a burnt offering. Once that, once that puppy's burnt, you don't get it back. You are bringing just all of it and giving it to God, saying, God, you're first and best. You're, you're, I, I recognize I receive all this from you. It's, it's yours. But we don't offer ourselves a dead sacrifice that gets burned up once and for all, but a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves alive because that's who we are in Christ. We've been brought from death to life, and we offer this new life to God. This right here is something that um, is really powerful. Dead to sin, alive with God. Say that with me out loud. Dead to sin, alive to God. You have just learned a powerful daily prayer. You can say this before your feet hit the ground in the morning and you have just summarized a whole big chunk of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You want to boil it down to some things? What do I have in Christ? Who am I in Christ? You're dead to sin and you are alive to God. Here's how massive this theological summary can affect your life. Why did Jesus have to die? To kill sin in me and to awaken me, to aliven me to the things of God. Before that, I was detached. There's no way I could have access to God and breathe his air. Why should I think that I will ever change? You ever have the enemy come and whisper that to you? You will never change. This is what you were handed by your family. You can't change. This is your disposition. You can't change. This is your circumstance. You'll never change. You keep struggling with that same thing. You'll never change. Why should I think I will ever change? Because I am dead to sin. I have a choice now. And I am alive to God. It's so telling that he doesn't say, God doesn't command us to die to sin, but informs us that we are in fact dead to it. That that has happened. One more question. This is so powerful. What should I do in this situation? You find yourself in a challenging situation. It's not black or white. There's lots of black and white that we just do like little trickery with our brain. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the genuine gray areas of life. What should I do in this situation? You ready for how powerful this little Simply Daily Prayer is? Is this. What would someone do who is dead to sin in this situation? What would someone do who's not bound by it, who's not forced to obey its lusts and passions, who has power and freedom over it? What would a person do in that situation? And what would a person do who is alive to God in this situation, in this decision before me, in this action that I can go left or right and I'm a little bit unsure of what I should do? What would a person do who's dead to sin 
and alive to God. There's so much practical stuff here. Back in April when we, uh, when we taught on this, I remember observing a sleeping bird be- below an electric wire next to the church. And as I looked closer, I realized it wasn't sleeping. That puppy was dead. And in showing you this image, here was the point behind showing you this image back in April. I wanted to re-show it to you because it's powerful. When you see something dead, the next funeral you go to, the next bird you see on the ground, the next roadkill you come across, you look at that thing and you say, that is positionally me in front of sin. I'm dead to it. I do not have to be enlivened by it. It has no power in me. I am dead to sin. That is the old us to sin, that we're, we're, we're dead to it. All right, let's go on to presenting our bodies. In chapter 6, we just looked at this, that sin doesn't have a say anymore in how you listen, so don't listen. But more than that, don't go near to listen to sin. Don't avail yourself. Don't present yourself where sin can have a seat at the table to kind of whisper some things to you. In chapter 12, the idea of presenting your body is that of living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. In both places, the fact that we're not to present ourselves to sin and we are to present ourselves to God, in both situations, it means we are to give ourselves, to offer ourselves, to yield ourselves. But a whole second connotation to to presenting is being present. It's availing ourselves. Don't avail yourself to sin. Do avail yourself to God. If someone asks you, are you available to meet? What does that mean? You go through this process. You go through at least two things. One is, am I free to meet? Do I have that appointment schedule open, that slot of time open? But secondly, it's an act of the will. Do I want to meet with this person? Are you available to meet means are you free? Do you have time to do it? That's part one. The second part is probably more important. Do I want to invest time with this person or not? What you avail yourself to determines the kind of life that you will lead. If you're married, listen to me carefully. You are known as unavailable, right? Hey, what's the status with that person? Unavailable. That means that you don't avail yourself. You may have spots open, but for the sake of a covenant that you made before God, For the sake of worship, you are unavailable to meet with certain people and in certain places and in certain things. And to upset that upsets all of life. But secondly, marriage also makes you exceedingly available. You better be in an intimate and ongoing way available to your spouse. It's not just one-sided. Being married doesn't mean now I'm just unavailable. It means I'm now intimately available over here, nurturing the oneness that God designed into marriage. Romans 7, 4 says this, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so so, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Becoming a Christian makes you unavailable, right? You ought to think of yourself in those terms. 
Hey, what's the deal with Michelle? Oh, Michelle's unavailable. She belongs to someone. But it doesn't just mean that she's unavailable to sin. That's only one part of it. If your entire Christian existence is saying, no, I'm unavailable, I can't do that, you'll, you'll tire and give up at some point. The status of Michelle being a Christian and being unavailable means, conversely, she is intimately and gives priority and is available to God. It's a wonderful picture of just sort of day to day. And what's the result? That we may bear fruit for God. So dead to sin, alive to God, unavailable for impurity, available for righteousness. When you think about not being available to sin, some of you, like me, will never win the lottery. There is a high, high, high degree that you will never, ever, ever, ever win the lottery. You know why? Because you don't play the lottery. So you aren't available to win the lottery. Now, I have received lottery tickets on occasion a few different times, so there's a slim, slim chance that any of us could win the lottery, but far more slim for me because I don't play the lottery. Here's another thing. Um, I most likely will never be mixed up. You'll never see a, a news article about your pastor getting mixed up in accusations about weapons charges in a bar fight outside of a bar at 3 a.m. I mean, there is just, it's possible, but, but it's really, really slim. And here's why. Here's the simple reason. I don't go to bars. I don't go to bars at 3 a.m. I don't go to bars at 3 p.m., thank God. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't go to bars, really. And I, I'm not really known as a brawler. So, so there's a slim chance you could drug me and kidnap me and place me at the scene. I, I suppose there's always a reason I could win the lottery or be involved in that situation. But in those situations, I don't avail myself. So there are certain, there are whole certain things that, that I'm not even available to be mixed up in the accusation of that being true. So it is with you. There are whole scenarios that you could just say, God, because of a decisive act of worship, I am not going to present my body in that situation. And it may be going a little bit overboard to your friends and family. They go, well, that, you, know, you're, you don't have to not go there. You can still enjoy it and be a Christian. I get that. But there are whole things that you choose to say, you know what, I'm not, that's become a regular easy thing for Christians to fall in or for, I know myself, I don't, I can't even put myself near that situation. So I won't. So you don't avail yourself to that. Yet, life consists of so many experiences that don't allow you to simply not be present. Some of you may be around and accused of huge big corporate embezzlement because you work at a job. You can't not be at that job. There may be unethical things going on at that job, but you don't have the option of saying, well, I can't be there. There are so many scenarios where you have to be present. What did Jesus say? Be in the world, but what? Not of the world. So hear this. The answer is not a commune. It's not to hide. It's not to go form a sanctioned Christian ghetto where we all just kind of hide out and then wait for the Lord's return. That's not our mission. That's not even a viable answer to this because as we'll see next week, sin starts right here in the mind. So even if your body isn't present, your mind can be rampantly wicked. Sanctification thrives when we work out our salvation 
in the midst of a crooked generation. This screen behind me was put up when we were teaching through this passage. It said this, shine, shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. Isn't that where your sanctification really gets challenged? That's where you have to begin to go, okay, what am I really living for? So much of life is not uh, able to remove yourself. Think about your body as an instrument for a moment. We already know it's not supposed to be an instrument for, <coughs> for unrighteousness, but rather for instruments of righteousness. If your body is a tool in the hands of God, you're able to be used to restore what is broken and to save lives. Think about a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon. How about your body as a brush to an artist or to a painter? With your body, the creator can paint beautiful pictures of grace. With your body, God can take drab wall space, add some color, and change the feel and dynamic of a, of a workspace or to a building. How about your body as a, as a weapon? Your body in the hands of a good and valiant warrior can be used to fight wicked enemies, slave traders and neglectors and abusers and killers and thieves. Sometimes people do that right now around the world in courtrooms wearing suits. But what they are, make no mistake, they are weapons in the hands of a mighty warrior fighting for those who have no voice. One more. Your body is an actual musical instrument. What would it look like to see your body in the hands of the musician and each time a parent cleans up accidents, packs up lunches, breaks up spats, what if they are just doing so in a way that is sounding the note of grace in their home? And their family is raised in this environment that just has the ongoing music of grace and just goes, man, there's all these little things that, you know, dishes were being done and laundry was being folded and lunches were being packed and there was just this never-ending cycle of it. But mom and dad's bodies were used in a way of service that stayed with me my entire life. We wrap up this series asking these questions. What does God do and what do we do? And I want to wrap up this morning in the same way. What God does, he has mercy and he manifests it. He shows it to us. He doesn't keep it hidden. He doesn't say, I'm merciful, but I'm not going to tell you how or why. He doesn't hide his feelings about us, nor does he hide his expectations. Think about this. The cross and the resurrection were done in the wide open public. They're both very well accounted for in both spiritual and secular writings. Number two is he takes pleasure by demonstrations of faith. If you're going through some Bible reading program or maybe reading the Old Testament for the first time in a long time, you're going to come across two phrases regularly and you're going to wonder, why are these so often repeated? When you'll hear this, bring the whole burnt offering. And then you also hear this idea of a sweet-smelling aroma to God. So as the sacrificial system is laid out, and there's all these details and rituals and very specific things that God mandates for his people, the way the Old Testament works is you'll read it multiple times. It's sort of cyclical. It's very, you know, sort of Middle Eastern in, in how it approaches things. Whole burnt offering, sweet-smelling aroma to God. 
There's nothing pleasing in the ceremony itself. It's not that God just really loves a good barbecue. That's not what it's talking about, right? So there's something more. What is it about this, this uh, specific ritual? It's pleasing because of the trust and the obedience and the love that is being expressed by carrying out these rituals, catch this, even when we don't understand the whole picture. I mean, as a pastor of a church, I sometimes read this and I think about the priests of the Old Testament and another slaughter and another purification ritual and another, I mean, just the sheer logistics of all of that sounds exhausting as I'm reading it, much less actually doing it. But the ancient worshipers, the ancient people of God could have had absolutely no idea all that this was pointing ahead to. They had no idea they were participating in that moment in sort of a shadow experience that was pointing ahead to the Lamb of God who would once for all take away the sins of the world, making all of this obsolete. So as God sees this going on and there's acts of intimate trust and obedience and love being expressed in following these rituals, it's not in the rituals themselves. It's the act of faith. God told us to do it, and so we're going to do it. In just a moment, we're going to take up an offering. Many of you hold this conviction, as do I, that I am to give first to my local church out of the first fruits, out of the first earnings that I have. And we do that collectively. And I know many of you else do it because we're still a church and we're able to be very generous with our funds. You are doing it as an act of trust, even when you don't understand all the details around it. God, you said to do this. It sure seems like I've got bills to pay and I don't know where it's coming next time, but I'm doing this as an act of faith. Some of you didn't even think about it this way, but you are sitting in church right now. You are presenting your bodies as an act of faith. You don't feel the need for church this morning. You don't feel a need for someone to come and talk at you for 40 minutes. You're like, ah, that's not first on my list of what I think I need today. You are doing it because you say as an act of worship, you've told me to sit under the teaching. You've told me to participate and be an active member in my church family. And so here I am. And many of you can give this, uh, this, this testimony. Man, I do that week after week. It's just become a spiritual habit. And I do it because I trust God that I should do it. And there's a cumulative effect that I'm so thankful God knew what he was doing and commanding me to do it. Because truth be told, I'd go be doing something else on my Sunday morning. I would come once a month. I would come once in a while when it seems pertinent or needed. Instead, I'm here as an act of faith, demonstrating my trust in my obedience to God. So it is with the dead sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. Here's this beautiful. Listen to Ephesians 5. When Christ came and the real atonement happened, Christ was the one who loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Listen to this, a pleasing aroma to God. Man, when you hear that in Ephesians and you understand all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you go, that was that same act of trust and obedience. God, take this cup away from me, if at all possible, but not my will, yours be done. All right, what do we do? Three things. One is that we respond to God's great love by tending to our responsibilities. 
our response is to take seriously the commands given to us in these chapters. But it's always as an act of response. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. We could say this about Christ. We obey, we present our bodies because he did it first. He showed us how to do it. And ours is simply a response. Number two is to keep God's mercies in view. Do you have any decisive actions in your life, decisive moments that you say, I am going to rehearse and review God's mercies in my life today? I would challenge you to build that into your life. It ties into gratitude, doesn't it? Just letting our requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. Because there's this this ongoing view that we need to go, God, you've already handled this in the past. You've already given me every single thing that I need. Now, in light of that, I'm going to make some other requests. But but these aren't demands. This is just in, in view of your worship. I would say this. If you come to worship and your worship, your heart for God is cold, look at God. Begin to look at God. Just look at who he is and what he's done. Number three is to present our bodies. <clears throat> present your body and then do it again. And let me say this, because this all sounds really neat and clean on a Sunday morning. It's not. When you fail, not if you fail. When you fail and you make yourself available here. When you fail and you overeat. When you fail and you bring your body to places it should not be. And you know that. And you get convicted of it. Here's what you do. You confess and you repent and you return. And you reoffer your body. God's mercies are new every morning. God's forgiveness is available every instant. And so we don't linger in that. We don't buy the lie that says, well, you've already fallen off the wagon. You might as well jump on the wagon and ride it for all it's worth. False. Man, repent. Return. Would you close your eyes for a moment? (laughs) Jesus, you presented your body as a sacrifice because we couldn't. Now that you've been restored, so can we. And we commit our very self, this tent gift that's been given by God, a body that we wear for a season, that we steward for a season. We thank you that we get to be your hands that comfort. We thank you that we get to be your feet that bring the gospel to the least of these. We thank you that we get to be eyes that see the hopelessness and ears that hear your sweet note of grace. Help us to revel in the gift of your mercies. Teach us, God, to see them every single day. Amen.